This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There was a story in the National Post today, which frankly is a little bit uh, distressing. It's more than a little staggering. It's disturbing. Pick your words. It's all there. And let me read you some of it. For the first time since 2000, half, half of Ontario grade six students failed to meet the provincial standards in math on last year's standardized test from the Educational Quality and Assessment Office, EQAO. Now, student performance, the story goes on to say, has been steadily declining since the 2010, 2009-10 school year, four years after a new and still controversial math curriculum took effect. It's also the same year the first batch of kindergartners to be taught entirely in the new curriculum would have taken the standardized test. Discovery math, it's called, and it doesn't appear that this is actually helping us, but we are going to find out. Dr. Robert Cragen is a math professor at the University of Manitoba. Uh, even more importantly for today's discussion, he is with the Western Initiative for Strengthening Education in Math, which has talked and dealt with this kind of thing, the new math, the discovery math. Dr. Cragen joins us now. Doctor, how are you this evening? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thr- thrilled to have you. And again, this this seems to be a discussion about discovery math. And I know we've been down this road before, and I've talked to you, and I've talked to other people. Can you, in the Reader's Digest version, explain the concept of what discovery math is? Okay, well, discovery math is, is a shorthand. It's sort of a rubric for a collection of methods for teaching, uh, educators call it pedagogy, uh, which involve um, the idea that the child should be their own teacher and the teacher should stand aside and be some sort of a guide. So um, the word discovery is sort of the suggestive word there. The child is supposed to discover things rather than have them told to them or what we would call direct instruction. Uh, so the, the teacher would attempt to set up experiences in the classroom that would lead children to make these discoveries, and the notion is that somebody knows or remembers or understands something more deeply if they discover it themselves, which uh, does sound very likely, and uh, it, it certainly uh, can be true in certain circumstances. But uh, the research on that matter uh, doesn't show that this is consistently the case, and our feeling, our, our, not our feeling, but our, our experience has been that this, uh, this leads to the watering down of, of curriculum. Teachers will complain, well, there's not enough time to teach all this stuff. And so every year there's another call to thin out the curriculum, get rid of some stuff so that there's more time to teach this stuff. Well, if that's the way you're trying to teach students, of course it's taking a lot of time teach very basic things. Right. So give us an example. So if I, let's say, for example, I was trying to teach a child how to multiply by 10 and I said, I want you to figure out how to do 10 times 12. How would I, as I know how I learned how to do that, how would I now be taught how to do something like that? Okay, well, if, if you're asking about how it might be taught, this would this would mean that we have to set up an experience in which the child <laughs> has to do this, and so the child maybe has a box of uh, of enough marbles to to do this, and they'll be putting them in groups, and multiplying means taking groups of the same number and putting them together, and you count the groups, you count the number in the group. This would take an awful long time. Of course, it's essentially the same thing as writing down uh, uh, did you say 10 times 12? Sure, yeah, 10 times 12. You might write 10 uh, uh, groups of 12 tallies and then count them all. Uh, th- this, of course, would be a very slow way to do it. And, and as the child moves on, they would, they would get them into, um, in, into doing other, uh, other ways of doing this. For example, with, uh, with 10 times 12, they might... Uh, well, uh, this one is probably not a particularly good example because 10 is, is a round number, but, but you would first multiply 10 by 10, and perhaps this is remembered, or this may be the definition of 100, and then 10 times 2, and then you would add them. So this would be essentially the standard algorithm. So that one, that one might not be particularly informative. But if you said uh, 7 times 8, this is a standard I- example. 7 times 8 is one of the more difficult single-digit multiplications. 
they might encourage the child to remember that seven times seven is forty-nine. If you remember the squares, you don't have to remember very much. And then you might say, well, seven times eight is going to be seven more than that. And so you have to, in your head or on your fingers or on paper, add seven more on to forty-nine and get fifty-six. But wh- I'm trying to understand why or who would say that somehow this is an advantageous or a better system than learning your times table so it's locked in your brain and then you can move on and deal with the other stuff with that basis already there. Well, the the intention appears to be, at least for some of the advocates, I don't, I, I don't want to color everybody with the same brush, but with some of the advocates, the intention seems to be to to prevent or delay or or retard the student's ability to remember these things by continually requiring them to show the individual steps as to how you would how you would get there from scratch and so it 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 really has this uh, this sort of anti-memory impetus to it and now many of the advocates will also tell you well eventually we want the child to remember their math facts but experientially you'll see parents hundreds or rather i should say thousands or tens of thousands of parents if you go to the alberta petition you see tens of thousands of people sign, uh, signing saying my child is not remembering stuff they're not they're not uh, getting their times tables down to here we've got kids in high school junior high school who are still multiplying by adding on their fingers and and uh, sort of working it all out from scratch and we're talking about multiplying single digit numbers uh, which means they haven't memorized their timetable, and uh, and they have similar difficulties with arithmetic. People are adding, you know, well past middle school, adding by by what we call counting on. You know, if you if you add six plus seven, uh, what would you do? You would start with six, and then you would count seven times, and so you'd have your fingers flying as you add those seven more on, and hopefully you hit thirteen and don't run out of fingers. Yeah, it's good um, that they use the word moron because that sounds like it's actually moronic. I mean, honestly, when you when you think about this, we've had you go back to the 1950s and the 60s and the guys who were launching rockets that landed on the moon with a man in them with a computer that was about as powerful as your iPhone all learned how to do math a certain way and it seemed fine for them and it seemed fine for generations of people who were pretty darn smart as far as I can tell. And we have now decided that that is not good enough for the kids. I, I just don't understand it. Well, I'll, I'll say this. The computers they were using at the time were nowhere near as powerful as your iPhone. Okay, but, uh, even worse. That, that aside, um, yes, people had uh, well-developed mathematical skills. Now, this arithmetic, of course, is the foundation of learning the modern math curriculum. It precedes algebra. It's not the only thing in the curriculum. But uh, arithmetic was a very strong foundation. When you have a strong foundation, you can build really good stuff on right, top of it. Right, right. And the idea with with uh, discovery learning is that it's sort of, it's not really a foundation-built house. It is more like a smorgasbord, and you go and you pick and choose interesting things. Right now, I'm I'm on the British Columbia uh, uh, listserv, where all the math teachers talk about the new curriculum, or new, new uh, uh, math year coming up, and every year they throw around these sort of random-sounding problems. So this would be great, you know, base your classes on this sort of thing. And I think if you're going to base your entire class on that, sure, the problems are interesting and many of them might be fun, but where is the foundational learning, this idea that mathematics is is relentlessly um, uh, built from one layer onto another hierarchically, uh, and you start at one level and you build on top of that. And they throw these problems out and you never see them say, this would be really good for grade six. Because there is no grade six. There's just sort of this random assortment. And, you know, you might try this in grade three or grade nine or grade 12. And the teacher is probably going to adjust it to fit their, 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 uh, the maturity level of their students. But there doesn't seem to be an idea that there's a progression. And first you do this, then you do that. This builds on top of that, and then you get something really beautiful when you, when the entire building is built. Do they do this, Doctor? Do they do this with other subjects? Like, are, are they, And I don't know the answer. I'm not being fun. I, do they, have they decided there's a better way to teach, for example, reading? That we're not going to actually teach you what the letter sounds like when you look at it on the page. We're going to do it through some sort of rubric. Or if they is math the only area where they're saying, no, no, it's all got to be different? 
Well, there has been a controversy that's come on and off, very similar to mathematics. The, it, it ebbs and flows. The, the pendulum swings back and forth, and, and people try to get students to discover or learn in more natural, organic ways, and then they go back to more systematic methods because the systematic methods actually work. You know, um, and so in reading in mathematics and, and writing and, and the, the language, language arts and mathematics, this happens a lot. It happens in science. It happens less in other disciplines. The thing is, mathematics seems to be the most susceptible subject to this kind of philosophy because mathematics, or the, the, the one that is, is most obvious when it happens, because mathematics is hierarchical. And so when you break that mold and say, well, let's treat it as a grab bag, there's a stark contrast between that and the conventional way of teaching it, and you can see it in the results. Now, you you cited this National Post article, which cites the EQAO study, that shows that as the new curriculum, which also, uh, we we don't confuse curriculum and pedagogy, but also the, the there's the curriculum was sort of based on the idea that the teachers are going to be using new methods, new pedagogy in classroom, which would include what you what you would call discovery math. As this happened, the assessments uh, uh, the assessment performance went down. Uh, and so this is a fairly strong correlation. It's very clear. The National Post article shows some graphs that show uh, how highly correlated these are. But I want to make a, a, yeah, a little bit be, of a could there be another explanation? Well, certainly there could be. Correlation is not causation. You always have to say that when you say this. Two things happen at the same time. That doesn't mean one caused the other. Maybe the other caused it, or okay. maybe there's okay. a third thing that caused them both, or maybe they're just coincidentally related. But when when there's there seems to be a clear explanation for why they're connected, and when you look at it in many different ways and the correlation remains there, then it's pretty strong evidence that there's some sort of a causative relationship, and we should be looking at that. But I, I want to make the point here. Uh, I don't look terribly seriously at this uh, um, as a deterministic statement about the changing quality of of education. Now, I don't want to really run down the EQAO. They are an independent organization, but they're they're part of the educational establishment. They're part of the the, the exams are are made and tested by by educators. It, it and so you end up with something that I would call the fox in the hen house problem, and that is that the very people who have a stake in the outcome, they have a stake in whether things are going up or things are going down. Uh, are in charge of producing those numbers. And so there's there's always the possibility that somebody might have their finger one way or another on the scale, and you might say, well, you know, they just sort of wanted this result, and you can, you can tweak the data, uh, or, or not so much tweak the data, but tr- tweak the actual tests. If you read on the EQAO site, you see that they say this is a test that tests according to the curriculum. So basically what they're saying is that the test they're testing with right now is not the same test they would have used with the previous curriculum before the changes in the curriculum because they want to test the curriculum. So this is a different, the students are definitely performing at a different standard, but it's against a different test uh, that's testing different things because they're testing this new curriculum. And so to me, that sort of muddies the water. It makes it harder to interpret what that what that means. So what I would do, as I go to uh, assessments that are not dependent on that, and there's two other assessments that work for Ontario. One is the uh, the OECD's PISA, PISA, uh, PISA assessment, and on that assessment, exactly the same thing has happened. Uh, uh, Ontario's performance has declined significantly on the PISA over more or less the same period. I, I go over the, the interval from 2003 to 2012, and we saw a significant decline for Ontario and, and all of Canada, for that matter. These things are happening right across Canada. And there's another one, the TIMS assessment. And, and in the TIMS assessment, uh, Ontario has also seen declining results and is performing very poorly right now, just on an objective level. And I'll say the difference, uh, the, the PISA exam tests more comprehensive skills, sort of life skills with mathematics. But the TIMS assessment, the one where Ontario is doing particularly poorly right now, um, 
it tests individual skills, so it's sort of highly diagnostic. It looks at the student's ability to perform this operation with fractions, for example. And right now, uh, if you look at, say, the students who, who are liable to go on to STEM disciplines, those would be the students who meet what they call the advanced benchmark in TIMS. Right now, only about 7% of, of the... Uh, of the uh, grade four students in uh, in the Tim's assessment in Ontario are reaching that level. Wow! You go you go up to the top jurisdictions in the world, Singapore, for example, forty three percent of their of their students are reaching that level. The United States, thirteen percent, twice as many students across the continental United States are reaching that advanced level in the TIMS assessment than in Ontario. So Doc, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. Ontario, uh, yeah. the, the United States is not known as a particularly high bar. We've got about one minute left here. I just wanted to ask you two things really quickly because we just got to get these in. Uh, first of all, why is this a problem? Because kids now are going to walk around with a cell phone that has a calculator on it all the time. Why do, why do they need to know this kind of basic math? Well, um, this is the foundation for higher thought in mathematics. Uh, you, need to, you need to be familiar with the operations of mathematics because everything else you learn later is based upon those things. Now, our, our educators and, and everybody in education, including us, uh, believe that one of the goals is to teach understanding. Students should come away with the ability to understand the world around them. And that, that means understanding the very tools that they're using to understand the world, such as mathematics. If you want to understand algebra, which is one of our fundamental tools for higher mathematics and engineering and all of the STEM disciplines, students must be fluent in algebra. They have to be fluent in arithmetic. Arithmetic is the foundation for algebra. So you can't just pull out your phone every time get uh, and get these numbers and pretend to actually understand what's going on with things things like uh, exponentials if you don't have that direct experience in learning how exponential growth works simply the fact the fact that you can pull out a calculator and get a big number doesn't really uh it doesn't really help you understand what's going on with things you actually have to do it and uh, and we always tell our calculus students at the beginning of of the term you have to do this to learn it. Sitting with your bum in a seat in our in our lectures is not going to teach you this subject. You have to sit down and do it. And the same thing is true with arithmetic. That's your foundation for, for learning. It's, uh, mathematics is the foundation for understanding. Understanding is the goal. So 10 seconds. Uh, I'm a parent. It's the first day of school. I'm concerned about the way things are going with my kid. I'm not sure they are learning math the way they should. Do you then make a point of sitting down and regardless of what the school wants you to do, going ahead and forcing the kid to learn the times tables and the basic arithmetic? Well, many of these children are uh, express relief when their parents do this and say, why didn't my teachers teach it to me that way? I would encourage parents, if they are confident in doing this, to teach their children that way. And otherwise, there are many good tu- tutorial services. And I'll tell you, one, one part of the economy that this uh, this trend is really good for is the uh, tutorial service. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, they are doing very well right now. <laughs> Dr. Robert Cregan from Western Initiative for Strengthening Education in Math. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know what? That's, uh, that's tough. If your kid is not getting their math, and I, mean, I was horrible at math, but my dad sat down and, man, oh, man, he drilled the times tables and the multiplication, everything into me. Now I can do it. I can do it. I didn't love it, but I can do it, and it's important. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Canada plays El Salvador tonight at 10 o'clock. I said at the top of the show, just down the road at... BMO Field. I was wrong. It's BC Place. Starts with the same letter, but after that, it's, you know, I was wrong. But it's at BC Place. It starts at 10, 7, uh, seven their time, 10 our time. And it is qualifying for the World Cup of Soccer. That is, of course, the biggest event in sports. Bigger than the Super Bowl, bigger than the Olympics. The World Cup of Soccer is the, by viewership, by participation, by interest around the world, World Cup of Soccer is the biggest event in the world of sports. Getting to the World Cup is difficult. There aren't that many teams that get in. Almost every country in the world has a soccer team. They all go through their different regions. If you can get to the World Cup, it is a huge 
bonus to you, to your soccer organization, to soccer in your country. Uh, For some places, if you don't get to the World Cup, it's a catastrophic failure. I mean, it would be a catastrophic failure if England failed to make it, if Brazil failed to make it, if Germany failed to make it, some of these power places, Argentina, France, Portugal, you name the, the soccer powers. If they don't make it to the World Cup, Italy, of course, it would be horrifying for people there. So it's a big, big, big deal. Not so much here, but we're trying. We haven't been to the World Cup in ages. 1986. 1986 was the last time we were at the World Cup, and we... The only time. The only time, and we pooped out in three straight games, didn't score a goal, and came home. But at least we Although were there. Although, in fairness, if we get there this time, that's the same thing is going to happen. Oh, sure, but, it, but that's, you know, at least we were there. And we've been spoiled a bit by how well our women's team has played on the World States. I understand it's a different depth of talent, depth of challenge with the number of teams and everything, not, not taking anything away from our women, but there are far fewer elite women's teams in the world internationally than there are men's teams. Regardless, our men traditionally have stunk. Our women have been great. We've enjoyed watching the women, the men. Mm. So I get back to this. They're playing against El Salvador tonight at BC Place. They're in a pool. It's a, it's a, it's a round robin. And the top two teams are going to advance. Mexico is way out in front. Mexico is a mile ahead. Mexico is going through. They already killed Canada a couple times. Mexico is going through. Canada right now is in third. Honduras is ahead of us. So if... I think I got that right. Anyway, the point is, they're playing tonight. If Canada wins, Honduras is, Honduras is out. Is that right? I got it wrong. But anyway... Here's the point. I've got myself all confused now. It's soccer. I'm I'm, I'm all confused all right, by soccer. I, I can I can lay this out. I, I will lay out the specific terms. Canada currently is sitting three points behind Honduras. A win is worth three points. Right. Honduras has a goal differential of zero right now. Canada is negative five. Canada owns the second tiebreaker against Honduras, which is away goals. So Canada needs to get their goal differential to the same or better than Honduras, which means Canada must win and Honduras over must El lose, Salvador and Honduras must lose to Mexico and the combined goal difference in the games must be five or more. Okay. So everyone's got that now. Cause I messed that up. I, my, I wrote it down and I couldn't read my writing. I be, apparently am now like a physician writing out prescription notes. First time I've done that here anyway. So here's the thing within the past 48 hours, we now have numerous reports from USA Today, Fox News, CBC, all kinds of places that El Salvador's players have come forward saying they were offered cash by a Salvadorian businessman who was working as the middleman on behalf of a Honduran businessman. Remember, if Canada wins by points, they tie Honduras and potentially the goal differential could put Canada through and only two teams make it through could leave Honduras back home. Now, the... El Salvadorian players out in BC actually played a 10-minute tape recording of the discussion with the fixer where they talk, where he talks about all this stuff. And the whole idea is that this Honduran businessman speaking through the El Salvadorian businessman to the El Salvadorian players wants to make sure that either Honduras wins but not by much or Canada doesn't win by much. Don't let the goal differential get out of hand. If Canada is going to win, do not let Canada score a bunch of goals or win by a great goal differential because that could really hurt Honduras's chances. Now, the thing about this that is staggering to me is that we live in a country, we live in a continent where the idea of match fixing, and that's what this is, match fixing, and and let me say one more thing. The El Salvadorian players, to their credit, a team that had 14 internationals banned for life for match fixing back in 2013. El Salvador has a track record of this. Clearly, the El Salvadorian players who survived that and weren't caught up in it, a little nervous about it. So as soon as they had someone come forward offering them this, they ran to the media to say, hey, not us. We're coming clean. Look, all this is transparent. It's all out there. But we live in a continent where NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, NFL, the thought that you would have businessmen 
contacting players and offering bribes for performance. You know, I'm not naive enough to believe that it never happens. We did have the Black Sox scandal back 1918 or whatever it was. We did have an an NBA referee who was doing some stuff that wasn't, you know, up and up at one point more recently. But this is something that just does not resonate with us. It just doesn't seem like something that we could ever imagine. Could you imagine that some United or some Canadian businessman serving as the middleman for an American businessman would be reaching out to Sidney Crosby to say, hey, Sid, in the World Cup this week, next week, you got to make sure you lose, but not by more than two goals. So basically throw the match, throw the game, but just not by too much. That, that to us seems unfathomable. We just don't experience that around here. That is not our sports culture. Again, I, I'm, I know that it probably does happen. I'm sure it's happened in college sports where the guys don't get played and they're far more susceptible to money flowing through. But the idea that this is not only going on, but going on so blatantly and so obviously and so out there, and the guy, here's the other part. And I know Luke wants to jump in. Luke's the, the resident soccer expert here. The, the guy, the businessman who is named in these reports, the El Salvadorian businessman, said, he's, he says, fine, go ahead and investigate me. I don't care. Some people will see good in this and some people will see bad. He's actually positioning himself that somehow he is an international hero because he is going to help make this whole thing, make this whole thing work. That's that's staggering. That is staggering. We only have a couple of minutes. We finally we were able to get John McGrain. We were having trouble getting a hold of our local soccer actor, John McGrain, who joins us now. John, thanks for doing this tonight. My apologies. Hey, no problem. Um, we're just talking about this situation that's going on with El Salvador. Tell me something. How often do you think in the world of soccer this stuff is still happening? Oh, I think if FIFA is any uh, indication of uh, the way things have happened at the, at the world level over the last 20 years, uh, I, I don't think there's any more corrupt organization uh, until recently than FIFA has been. So uh, most of the people who were indicted were from South America and Central America. So I think it's a way of life, and uh, it's going to be very difficult to get rid of. So what happens after tonight's game? Because we know what the parameters of this, I mean, the, the El Salvadorian players came forward and said what it was. Uh, and good for them, as I say, for doing that. But we now know what the match fixer wanted. And that was uh, that El Salvador, not loo- or El Salvador lose by two or more. What happens if exactly what he wanted ends up happening in this one, even if it's by fluke? Does does FIFA now jump in and crack down hard, or does FIFA take a soft stance on the outside and say, "Oh, you know, we can't prove anything"? I think, regardless of the result, uh, that I think the accusations that are out there have to be investigated, uh, and uh, and if people are found to, uh, you know, be in the wrong, that they should be uh, prosecuted. It's as simple as that, regardless of the outcome. But you just said that this, you know, that this has been a way of life. Why has match fixing, bribery, whatever you want to call it, in the world of soccer, why has it been so difficult to eradicate? Because it doesn't seem like it's this, this kind of problem elsewhere in other sports. Uh, well, if you're talking about North American sports, don't forget FIFA uh, and soccer in general is a world sport, and gambling is a very big part of you know the Far East and Singapore, and I mean Canada was caught up in a. Uh, a bribery scandal almost uh, 20 odd years ago. Uh, it's a way of life. Gambling uh, in uh, the former Yugoslavia that was w- why the CSL itself was disbanded uh, or was decertified by the CSA uh, last year was because of match fixing in Bosnia. So uh, to, to think that it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of money at stake in TV rights and so forth for. You know, for Honduras to go through and not and not Canada. I mean, there's a there's a lot of financial uh, uh, there's a lot of financial stuff at stake right now, and I don't be too surprised if that is the basis for why this happened. So, in 2018 or any other time, there is a major world event, whether it's the Euros, whether it's the World Cup, whatever. When you sit down and you'll watch almost every game, when you sit there and you tune in to watch these games, what would be your level of confidence? 
on a game-by-game basis that both teams and the officials are on the up-and-up and and there's not something going on behind the scenes? I think when you get to that level, uh, there's more at stake than money. It's prestige. Uh, And I don't think... And the players at that level are making so much money. We're talking tens of millions of dollars a year at the Euros and at the World Cup level uh, that that they can't be bought, that what they won is the prize at the end of the day, which is to win a World Cup. Uh, I think when you get into the qualification where you're dealing with, you know, Central American and uh, and, and African nations and maybe Asian nations, uh, where they don't get paid a lot of money, that there is the possibility to bribe people like that. I mean, don't forget El Salvador, Honduras. Uh, I mean, they're very, very, and Guatemala, they're very, very poor countries. And the fact that there's money floating around and people are actually thinking about it, I mean, uh, I'm not surprised. But on the world level, 100% guaranteed that there, that there is none of this nonsense going on. I hope you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's so disappointing when you hear this stuff because you want to have faith in these games. You want to believe that it's all on the up and up and that what you're watching is, is credible and believable. But... Um I don't know. Every once in a while, John, you hear one of these things and you sort of shake your head and you say, I don't know what I'm watching, but um, we'll, we'll see tonight. Listen, I, I, we got to run. Uh, appreciate you calling in, John. Thanks for the time. Hey, my apologies for being so late. No worries. No worries. Uh, tonight, again, you can watch that game, 10 o'clock. Uh, it is from BC Place, and you can judge for yourself <laughs> whether, whether you think there's any funny stuff going on. Um, Maybe if nothing else, what it did was drive up the TV ratings by making everyone now want to tune in to see, hey, can I see anything that's suspicious? Can I spot match fixing if it happens? Who knows now? But that's on tonight. You can check that out long after this show is over. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Before there was Penny Alexiak, there was my next guest. Alexiak had a gold, a silver, and two bronze. My next guest had two gold, a silver, and a bronze. But here's the thing. In some people's minds, because it was the Paralympics, it doesn't really count. I mean, it's the Paralympics. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I'm sure that for a lot of people, I'm not wrong. They would say, well, yeah, it's the Paralympics. It's not really... Well, listen, tomorrow night... The Paralympic torch is going to be lit, and it's fair at this point to wonder how many people are really caring about this. There is no debate that I've heard about our flag bearer. There's not much talk that I've heard about our viewing plans or what's going to be on TV. Uh, Up until a few days ago, there was only like 12% of tickets that were sold for this event. Um, now they're giving tickets away, apparently, to try and put some people in the stands. It's, it, it's not a pretty picture. And Summer, I got to tell you, thanks for coming on, Summer. But uh, when you hear all this, does this bother you? I mean, it has to bother you when you know what you put into a sport and then you hear that it's such a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bittersweet coming on to talk because I, I should be there, but I'm not. Um, and I have to watch all my friends compete, which I'm so excited for them to be doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that the tickets are, uh, the ticket sales aren't where they need to be. The venue and, and the budget has been cut as a result of the Olympics and having a whole bunch of riots and stuff outside of the village that they weren't considering. Um, and I mean, the venues look amazing inside of the, the village. The um, Canada house looks awesome. USA house is amazing. Australia's looks great. Great Britain is always, you know, they're always well set. Um, so, I mean, in regards to the village, it looks wonderful. Um, in regards to the game coverage, I don't know how, uh, how popular it's going to be out there, though. Why, why do you think this is? And not just in Brazil. I mean, obviously in Rio it's been a challenge. But why is it such a struggle for people to engage with the Paralympics, it seems? I mean, is it because it's after and we have Olympic fatigue? Or is it respect for the athletes? Or what do you think it is? Um, I personally think it's a stereotype and I think it's a lot of discrimination, not from the communal level, I guess, within society. I think it's a lot of the large corporations and I'm sure, you know, that that won't sound very nice to many people because there are so many large companies and corporations that are supporting the Paralympics, but there's still this stigma in society over the years that's been slowly dwindling and, um, you know, becoming less and less and more people are jumping on the bandwagon and supporting it. 
But when you've got so many sponsors for the Olympics and you've got so much money going into the Olympics and then the Paralympics shows up and it's two weeks after, so they have time to repair the village. You've got the sponsors who have had their main athletes who won all these medals and everyone's on such a high from the one set of athletes that they're completely um, almost disregarding the second games that's about to happen. I mean, I've had multiple people ask me if I'm a special Olympian and the fact that there is absolutely no... um, difference between the two in society's mind you know that's that's a problem right off the bat so i think um i think it's just a matter of advertising media coverage um social media talking about it and i think that it's going to have to be i mean the athletes are already supporting it and the family's words of mouth is what's getting it around and then slowly but surely organizations are jumping on it as well and i mean this game's coverage has the most coverage Uh, In the history of the games, as far as I'm aware, London was the same before. So there's constantly small improvements, but it shouldn't have to be small improvements. It should be something that's already dealt with, and it's a quality, um, and and it's the rights of all the athletes. I mean, they're people. Some of them look different. Some of them may startle, but that's because of social social media's image of beauty and uh, and what fit is. And I, I think redefining what the word fit is is uh, is something that will definitely play a big factor into equality for for both teams. Well, let me bring this up, and and you know what? You, I mean, I may be embarrassing you. I don't know, but I mean, you are uh, you were chosen to be in a Sportsnet uh, bathing suit. I mean, no, but but clearly, you are someone. You are an attractive athlete. You're a successful athlete. You won four medals, two gold medals. You did exceptionally well. You are not someone when you talk about looking different. Even if we're going to use that as the the thing that that holds people back, you don't. Somebody who would see you would never know that necessarily you were in the Paralympics. And when you came back, having been so successful for Canada, you, well, I mean, you tell the story, but you couldn't find anybody to sponsor you. Yeah, I I mean, I did end up getting um, a car sponsorship the following year from Will Chevrolet, and they're amazing people, and they they helped me out the year after the Games, and um, then I started struggling and needed to have some surgeries, so I ended up uh, backing off of Swimming for Worlds that year, uh, and then I made the switch over to the Netherlands, but yeah, I mean... I personally think that, that that looks shouldn't play a factor into media coverage and getting sponsors and the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm a relatively normal looking person. And I mean, I don't have three eyes, so I guess I'm, I'm decent looking. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that that's not the only reason. Let me just say. <laughs> <laughs> you think it would have been a little bit easier for me to get sponsors. Um, but again, it's, it's where, um, it's where the money wants to be invested. And if corporations don't see you having any benefit to them, some do, some don't. And slowly they're starting to realize that they do. I mean, North America's stigma between the Paralympics and the Olympics is something that's it's very ancient in regards to other countries and how they, how they host their Paralympic athletes. I mean, they're, uh, again, all over the world, there's different variations of equality and, and different levels of progression between the two um, the two games. But you do notice a difference between countries and what athletes are getting as a result of winning medals and which ones have sponsors and how much their country is investing into that team versus the Olympic team, right? I personally think it should be the same organization. I think it should be a COC and a CPC, you know, Olympic Committee and a Paralympic Committee. And I think it should be one combined organization where they split up the cost based off of the volume of the athletes and the, the amount of performance it's not you know it's you don't need to bang your face against the brick wall in order to understand that both athletes are the exact same caliber paralympic athletes have an even harder time you know training and dealing with their obstacles and i personally think that they're the kind of people that you should want to have on social media and you should want to be putting on billboards because the amount of commitment and the amount of perseverance that they go through you know they're the kind of people that you want working for you well i I do find this kind of interesting because if you were to turn on uh nbc or cbc during the olympics they go out of their way they are dying to find the stories of the people who have overcome various forms of adversity i mean every nbc (laughs) event is preceded by some sort of soft focus piano music backed tale of some athlete who was hit by a bus and had to recover from injuries while his mother was dying from cancer in a homeless shelter and dad was, I don't know, fighting scurvy or something. And every single athlete in the Paralympics isn't that, but has a compelling story, probably more compelling even than the people who were in the Olympics. So I find it interesting that for the stations, for the networks that love these stories, 
they don't seem to like them so much when it's actual real stories. Yeah, I, I, and I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not God, and <laughs> I can't read minds. But uh, yeah, welcome to the Paralympics. A lot of the <laughs> athletes have those stories, like you know. And I, I laugh, and it's not out of bitterness or or just finding things funny, but it's almost ironic that they they look for the athletes in the so-called able-bodied side of sport. And they'll highlight the fact that they had some kind of a tragedy. And that's that's great. And they're deserving of that recognition because, yeah, life is tough and athletes do deal with a lot. When they're able to come out on top, they do deserve the recognition they're getting. Uh, but you have the Paralympians who on a daily basis face adversity and face issues that, you know, it may be a one-time thing for one of the athletes that are in the able-bodied side of sport, but it could be a daily thing for the Paralympians. And the amount of recognition that they're getting as a whole isn't enough and the amount of recognition that they're getting individually is far from enough i mean i got a lot of recognition when i came back from london just because i was the most decorated athlete of either game um and that was wonderful and i'm so glad that i got that not saying that i i deserve more or less than i got i think it was great but at the same time when i walked out there was the wheelchair basketball guys behind me who won gold medals and they were completely overshadowed by me walking out with four medals and I don't know if it's a Canadian thing to say that everyone deserves, you know, recognition, because they do. I think it was a shame that I was the one that was highlighted when there were so many other gold medals. Well, go back for a second, because I'm talking about this example that, they, that, that the networks love to show these stories of, of people overcoming stuff. You were an elite athlete before you were a Paralympian. You were on your path, perhaps, to the Olympics. For people who don't remember, take 30 seconds and remind people of why you were in the Paralympics, because that's not, that's not where you started. That wasn't the path you started on. Yeah, so, I mean, I was an able-bodied swimmer. Um, growing up my whole life, I was number one in Canada from the age of 11 for my age group. I was the youngest athlete at 2008 Beijing trials to compete. Uh, ended up missing out on making the team. Continued training, and they put me in the Olympic wave pool, meaning I was one of the athletes who were expected to make the next Olympic team for Canada. Um, that being said, I was also doing competitive trampoline at the time. Um, that was, you know, kind of something I picked up all on my own, and I, I really had a passion for it, and I wanted to do it as well. And uh, one day in practice, I ended up breaking both my feet um, off of a double mini trampoline accident. Um, shouldn't have happened. Precautions weren't taken into place, uh, but that's why they're called accidents. So I ended up having four surgeries. Um, they said I'd potentially never walk again. They were considering amputating my feet at the beginning. Um, and as soon as I got out of the fiberglass cast, I was back in the water learning how to walk learning how to how to swim differently, seeing what range of motion I could get with physio and seeing if strength would come back and if I would be able to be walking again. Um, and then as a result of that, I mean, obviously I'm walking. You guys, you've seen me do it. I'm sure the media has pictures of it too. Um, I, I have no dorsiflexion, so my feet pulling them towards me doesn't exist. I have negative. I don't even have 90 degrees. Um, pointing my feet is very limited, and as well as sideways rotation, that's completely gone. Um, I have hardware in my feet as a result, holding my bones together. My bones ha don't have any kind of um, gel in between them, so they grind against each other. I have arthritis, tendinosis, and I also have chronic pain in, in, a various, um, in many various forms. Um, but pain isn't a factor into the Paralympics. So for me, it was losing mobility in both my feet, and as of that, losing strength, losing muscle, um, and having to completely modify the way I do my sport. And the irony of all this, and this is the great irony of this, is that that kind of story, had you made it back, had it been slightly less and you made it to the Olympics, you would have had that story told on every single network, every single day that you were swimming. But because it's not the Olympics, again, it's, it doesn't matter. Right? Uh, well, I mean, obviously I would have had to have done something in the Olympics. I, no, I understand that, of course. <laughs> I, no, I, I understand that. But again, it's, it's just, it's, again, it's, my point is that we love these stories until it's in the Paralympics and then it's, well, you know, whatever. And I mean, let me, let, I want you to tell one other story because when you came back, it's not just corporations. I mean, we, we sort of say, well, the corporations aren't doing anything or a lot of them aren't. There was an event involving the Olympians with the Canadian Olympic Committee involved. Tell that story of what happened that day you went to Toronto. Yeah, I mean, obviously, progress takes time, and I, I don't want to be bashing any committees or corporations because, again, progress is something that is happening, and it's so great to see. It's just unfortunate that it's so slow. Um, but we did have, an, uh, I guess, a tour of sorts 
um, where we went up to Parliament and then we took Via Rail back to Toronto. With that being said, they announced that, you know, Canada's only Olympic gold medal was on the train and I was sitting with the other gold medalists and uh, Paralympians and we, we were just, you know, we kind of just sat there and looked at each other and went, well, what are our medals? You know, are they chocolate loonies? Um, <laughs> and then when we got there, you know, we stayed in different hotels. Um, the Olympic athletes had sponsorships and they received jewelry and the Paralympians didn't receive anything. It was just, it, it was blatantly obvious where the the money and the corporations i guess the committees had differences and um it, it was it's sad that it happened because it makes the athletes you know the paralympians who did win all this great stuff and had recognition i mean it wasn't the whole paralympic team who came on the tour it was only the medalists um it, it was it was a little bit of a blow to the gut for them because you know they, they came back and they did all this great stuff and a lot of um, the athletes as a whole were, were overshadowed and treated lesser and they shouldn't feel like they're treated lesser because they are completely equal. They're completely level and the achievements are the exact same. We talked about this once before and I'm just going to, I'm going to let you go after this, but we, we talked once before about this. I think I, I recall having you on here talking about this. Would it be, I've always thought that the, one of the ways, certainly not a solve all problem, but one of the ways to make this a little bit better would be to move the Paralympics before the Olympics. All the media are rolling into wherever Rio this time they're getting set up. They're there a week before, um, if you were to have the Paralympics on as the, hey, let's get, even if it's, and this may be insulting to you, but as the, let's get warmed up for the Olympics kind of thing. But I mean, at least you would have people gearing up and, and the build up, and it would be there. And I think you would have people paying attention. I, I just, I think, I think, tell me if I'm wrong. I think that holding it before would be a much, much better idea that would get much more attention onto these games. <laughs> it's funny that you say as a warm up because that was the, uh, the advertising on the, uh, billboards out in Great Britain for London for the Paralympics and it said thanks for the warm up and it said London 2012 Paralympics. Um <laughs> yeah, which which is hilarious. I I don't think it'll make too much of a difference being before or after or being at the the same time which wouldn't work. What about I the same time? Yeah, well ask tell me about that. What about the same time so that you've got the the swimming is going on for the whole time? Well, you have to consider that the venues would have to be twice as large to hold the volume of of the athletes in there. So uh, in regards to, to budget and facility building, they'd have to take into account that they'd need twice the size for, you know, half the time. Um, in, in regards to accessibility and safety, uh, the Paralympians, I personally think that it would be detrimental to the Games for the Paralympians to be in the same competition at the same time with the able-bodied athletes because um, they, you know, Paralympians are required uh, handicap accessible services. They are required more space. They are required mindfulness in the training centers. Um, so in regards to safety and just comfort of both sides of the sport, able-bodied and para-athlete, um, I think having it separated is not a bad thing. Um, in regards to recognition of, of placing in time, uh, I think either way we're still, we're either getting the warm up or we're getting the afterthought is, I guess if, if that's how you want to word the games being the prime event for the able-bodied athlete. Um, I think having it after, you know, it has been a, a pretty straightforward approach and it, it seems to be working. I think it's just keeping the, the excitement and, and really blasting it through society so that all these young kids who have these different disabilities and, and these, well, I guess different abilities, I wouldn't even call them disabilities, getting it out there so that they can look at that and say, hey, I want to be like so-and-so. They're just like me. Look at what they can do. I can do it too. Because honestly, for, for, for a kid who doesn't have legs or is in the hospital and, and bedridden to be looking at Michael Phelps, yeah, he's a cool guy. They can idolize him. But how cool would it be if they had someone who was just like them? It'd be 10 times cooler. And I think that hype needs to be to be brought into society in order to make it as big as the Olympics. And it's slowly growing. And I think it's just a matter of pushing it more and spreading awareness. Great points. Um, one of these days we have to have you back in here so I can almost drop all your medals on the floor again. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> yeah, the, the day for those who, when Summer came back a couple of years ago, she came in studio and handed me all of her medals and they slipped and I just caught them before they all clanged onto the floor and probably put dents in them, which I don't know how much that would have cost me to get Paralympic gold medals replaced, but more than I can afford, I can assure you of that. They were heavy though. You, you wear those too often, you need an adjustment. 
Yeah, they they stay in uh, they stay in their cases. <laughs> Summer Mortimer, four-time Paralympic medalist from the London Paralympics. Uh, Summer, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, you know what? It's something to to keep in mind. I know that you are not. I know that I'm not going to watch the Paralympics like I watched the Olympics for a couple of reasons. One, it's not as prevalent. It's not in your face all the time. It's not as easy to find. But you know what? Like I, 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 I struggle. I don't know about you. I struggle with the idea that I say, well, you know what? I mean, okay, I'm kind of fatigued on the whole Olympic thing. I've seen enough swimming for, you know, months. I saw more swimming in the last month than I've seen in the last four years. And, you know, I've seen enough gymnastics. I've seen enough whatever. Well, this is not a guilt thing. That's, that's the other part about this that I find really difficult. That there shouldn't be a guilt thing that says, oh, you know, they're disabled. I should watch them. That's, that's not, that's not what it is. And that's why I wanted to highlight the fact that Summer was an elite, able-bodied athlete before she had an accident. And this was the venue. This was where she was able to then take her athletic abilities and perform because the, the injuries precluded her from being able to, because she can't bend her feet, she can't do the, the same kicking. It really, you can't compete on a level playing field. You have to then, this is where you can compete. It's a, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's terrible. What happened to her injury wise, does that make her a less of an athlete because there was an accident, because there was some sort of physical impairment that precludes her from being able to do the things that the other athletes do? I don't think it reduces the athleticism, but for some reason in our minds, and I'm not excluding myself, we have a harder time and maybe it's what she said. Maybe, maybe part of the point here is exactly what Summer said is we don't want to admit it, but we have a hard time sometimes watching people who look different from us. We kind of get freaked out sometimes by people who are missing a leg or who have some birth issue that, you know, that that's uncomfortable sometimes for people, for us to watch. And so we just would rather not. We'll see what the numbers are like. I mean, the, hopefully they get lots of people in there because even if you're not going to watch, even if you're not going to turn it on and you say, Radley, why are you spending all this time talking about this? I'm not going to watch any. Okay. I mean, that's your choice, obviously, but hopefully at least for the sake of the athletes who again are world-class athletes, just with something that has precluded them from being in the Olympics physically, hopefully at least for their sake. There are crowds in those venues. I mean, could you imagine swimming every day at like four in the morning to train and train and train? And again, you're a world-class athlete. You just have something that won't let you compete with the Michael Phelps of the world physically. That's not your fault. You compete, you, you train for four years. You are the best in the world. You go to the, the Paralympics, you get in the pool and there's like five people sitting around or 50 or a hundred. Hopefully that's not the case. I think we all would say that. I mean, and we're maybe not going to solve that problem ourselves, but hopefully at least wherever the games are, in this case, Rio, there are people there. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.